Hey, you spooky good humans. Welcome back to Murdered and Missing. I'm your host, Nicole, and the case I have for you today is out of Texarkana, Texas, and Arkansas. That's right. It is spanning across two states sharing the same name, Texarkana. We're going to be discussing the Texas Moonlight Murders. It's sometimes referred to as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer. This week's episode will have a heavy, and I mean heavy, trigger warning as we talk of extreme physical violence and sexual assault. Listener discretion is heavily advised. These brutal killings inspired the 1976 film The Town That Dreaded Sundown, in which the killer donned a white mask and hunted down his victims on remote lover's lanes. The movie was inspired by the real-life killings that happened in 1946 in which five individuals tragically lost their lives and three individuals had their lives changed horribly and forever. The killer targeted male-female pairs over a 10-week period on isolated roads often referred to as lover's lanes. These crimes remain unsolved 77 years later. This is a Texarkana Moonlight Murders. The first attack occurred on February 22, 1946. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry were on a double date that evening with Jimmy's brother Bob and Bob's girlfriend. The couples went out to dinner and a movie before calling it quits around 11 p.m. Jimmy had driven both of the couples that evening and Bob and his girlfriend had asked to be dropped off first. Mary lived about 20 miles outside of town. Jimmy and Mary thought that it would be a good way to spend some alone time together and they agreed to drop Bob and his girlfriend off. After dropping Bob and his girlfriend off, Jimmy and Mary headed to Hooks, where Mary lived. While on the way to Mary's home, the couple pulled off onto Richmond Road, which was an unpaved, unnamed, and very isolated road at the time. Jimmy and Mary pulled over roughly around 11.45 p.m., and they were there for just about 10 minutes before being approached by their attacker. The unknown attacker approached the car from the driver's side and flashed, excuse me, and shined a flashlight into the vehicle to try and disorient Jimmy and Mary. This works, but only slightly, and Jimmy and Mary could still see that there was a man and he was standing outside wearing a mask made of white cloth, and it looked like he had possibly cut slits where his eyes would be so that he could see out of. They would later describe to the police that the mask he was wearing looked like a white pillowcase. At first, Jimmy thought that this was a prank and that the guy at the door had the wrong car. However, those hopes were dashed when the masked man said, quote, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Those demands included pointing a gun at them and ordering them out of the car. Terrified and not wanting to get hurt, they complied and they exited the vehicle through the driver's side door. When they were both out of the car, the attacker demanded that Jimmy remove his pants. At first, he was initially hesitant because, like I said earlier, Jimmy thought that this was a prank. However, Mary quickly realized this was not a prank and begged Jimmy to comply. The killer then said, quote, 
take off your goddamn britches, end quote. Jimmy undid his belt and took his pants off. Then, still shining the flashlight in their faces and holding a gun in the other, the masked attacker approached Jimmy and hit him in the head so hard with the weapon twice that later, when questioned in the hospital, Mary would say, quote, The noise was so loud, I thought Jimmy had been shot. I learned later that was the sound of his skull cracking. I can't begin to fathom what that must have sounded like. And at this point, Jimmy and Mary thought that they may be possibly victims of a robbery. So Mary actually is going to remove Jimmy's wallet from his pants. And she's going to tell the attacker, quote, look, he doesn't have any money. But the man told me that I was lying. Now, I do want to say, spoiler alert, that Mary and Jimmy do survive this attack. So this is going to be a first hand account um, from a source on Unresolved Me that I pulled a lot of this information from. This was a very, very vital and amazing resource for this case. Now, after Mary pulled out Jimmy's wallet and said that he didn't have any money, the, um, the attacker actually demanded that Mary had a purse and that she produce this purse. She again was insistent, I don't have a purse. Shortly after this interaction, Mary is going to be hit in the head and she's going to drop to the ground. Mary fortunately wasn't hit nearly as hard as Jimmy and she was able to get back up to her feet. I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'm sure she was driven by fear and adrenaline and a mixture of the two. Now once back on her feet, the attacker is going to tell Mary to run. So she did. She ran. She ran to a nearby ditch. But the attacker is going to yell at her and tell her to keep running up the road, running away from him, away from Jimmy, and away from the safety of the tree lines that was on either side of the road. He was driving her out into the open where he could see her and where he could hunt her. Now, while running for her life, Mary's going to spot a car up the road. She's going to run for it. She's going to hope that there is someone in that car. But those hopes were dashed when she got closer and realized that the car had been parked for a while. It was cold and there was nobody in sight. Now, at this point, the attacker is going to catch up to her and he's going to demand to know why she ran. Dumbfounded, Mary's going to tell him, it's because you told me to. He's going to deny that call her a liar, and then shove her to the ground. Now, this is where the heavy trigger warning is going to come in for the sexual assault. So once on the ground, he's going to begin to sexually assault her. Mary said she isn't sure how long the assault went on, but she does remember this piece of trash being scared off by approaching headlights. So this car is, is approaching and this trashy scummy piece of garbage human being is going to run off into the trees and disappear into the darkness now during the assault on mary jimmy's actually going to regain consciousness he's confused he's severely injured and he's going to struggle to get up to his feet and just try and figure out where he is 
at some point during this, he's going to notice that Mary and the attacker are missing. And after he struggled to his feet, um, he is going to go and try and find Mary. And he manages to walk to Richmond Road, where thankfully that car who scared off the attacker is the one that he sees. And he's able to flag this car down. Now the driver of the car agrees to help and is going to drive away, leaving Jimmy there. He's going to drive to a funeral home and they're going to call the police. Now, like I said, this is the same car that scared the attacker off and allowed Mary herself to actually run away and seek help from a resident on the 800 block of Blanton Street. Now, within 30 minutes of the first call, the Bowie County Sheriff's Office was on the scene. They have been described in some source material as eager to learn more about the, this attacker who, quote, disappeared into thin air. Police initially suspect that this attacker was, be, this attack, excuse me, a, occurred due to some like strange love triangle gone wrong and they thought that like Mary or Jimmy or somebody was involved in some sort of lovers quarrel and that is why that Jimmy and Mary were attacked. However, they don't realize that this is only the beginning of a series of attacks that would terrorize the small quiet town of Texarkana spanning two states in 10 weeks. After police arrive on scene, Mary and Jimmy would be taken to the hospital. Mary was released the following day with just minor head wounds and what I can only imagine as emotional, mental, and physical trauma from the attack, from watching Jimmy be assaulted, and from her own sexual assault. The same couldn't be said for Jimmy, though. Jimmy is going to remain in the hospital for almost two weeks with multiple skull fractures. And during his stay in the hospital, he would struggle to remain conscious. But when he did, he would eventually tell the sheriff's office that the man who attacked them was white and around 30 years old. However, Mary would tell police that she believed the attacker to be African-American and in his late 20s to early 30s. One thing that Jimmy and Mary both agreed upon, though, was that the attacker was tall. Now, I want to note that the fact that neither Jimmy nor Mary can describe what their attacker looks like does not surprise me. Encoding memories during high stress is almost impossible to encode those memories correctly. I am studying faulty eyewitness testimony as my like research paper throughout getting my master's degree and faulty eyewitness testimony is not as reliable or excuse me eyewitness testimony is not as reliable as we have been led to believe when we are under a copious amounts of stress like Jimmy and Mary were that night there is going to be some memory encoding gone wrong and I do not fault either one of them for not being able to describe their attacker the the, the stress and the trauma that these two went through I, I can't even 
begin to fathom. And in 1946, police didn't know that eyewitness testimony was faulty. Heck, even now they don't believe that eyewitness testimony is as faulty as we're starting to see that it is. Now, at first, police are really going to rely heavily on this lover's quarrel, lover's triangle type thing. And they're going to think that one of the other, so either Jimmy or Mary, is lying to protect either the other person, their other lover, or somebody. They're, they think, police think, that Jimmy and Mary know their, um, their attacker. And it would be months before the police would finally link the attack on Jimmy and Mary to a serial killer terrorizing the Texarkana countryside. Now we're going to fast forward nearly a month to March 24th, 1946. Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore were out and about together on the evening of March 23rd, so just the night before. The couple had been in a cafe in Texarkana visiting with Richard's sister Eleanor and her boyfriend till around 10 p.m. After they left the cafe, Richard and Polly would also head to a nearby lover's lane. But unlike Jimmy and Mary, Richard and Polly wouldn't survive their encounter with the masked man. Early the following day, around 8.30 to 9 a.m., an unnamed witness is going to be driving down Richmond Road, and they're going to spot Richard's Oldsmobile parked alongside the road. Thinking that they were maybe having some car trouble, this individual pulled over to see if it they could help. When the witness peered inside the car, he saw Richard crouch between the front seats, his hands crossed and his head resting on them, with his pockets turned out. And in the back seat, Polly was face down and her pockets were also turned out. The witness initially assumed that Richard and Polly were asleep. However, upon closer inspection, this witness would soon find out just how wrong they were. They would notice blood all over the inside of the car, prompting him to alert the authorities. Now, once the Bowie County Sheriff's Office arrived on scene, they would learn that Richard and Polly were shot to death execution style. Sheriff Presley and Texas City Chief of Police Jack Runnels were the first on scene. During the initial investigation, police would find a patch of soil soaked in blood about 20 feet away from the car, and this led police to believe that Richard and Polly were shot outside of the vehicle and then dragged back into the car, and their bodies were then staged. However, a blood test would later confirm that it was Polly who was actually shot outside of the vehicle, and Richard was shot inside. I don't know how blood testing was back in the 1940s. I'm thinking maybe they were able to do like typing where like a negative, be positive, things like that. And then they were able to link the type of blood it was to either Polly or Richard. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'll have to look that up though. So like I said, um, Polly was then staged inside of the vehicle and Richard was shot inside the vehicle. Now, blood is going to be found all over the running boards, inside of the car, 
it's going to be running out of the door and then pulling underneath of the vehicle. And the bullets used in this attack were a 32 caliber and police suspected that those bullets came from a Colt pistol. Footprints are also going to be found at the crime scene, but before police were able to collect a sample from them, a heavy rainstorm is going to sweep through the area, washing away blood evidence and those footprints. Now, according to source material for this episode, there was no forensic examination performed on either Polly or Richard. So, there is no evidence to support what I'm going to tell you next, but there's also no evidence to not support it. So, I don't know. Now, there are rumors that are circling this case that Polly was also sexually assaulted like Mary was. And they believe that her assault occurred either before her murder or during her murder. Now, just like Mary's case, police are not going to announce that they believe Polly was sexually assaulted. So in Mary's investigation, they don't announce it. And in Polly's investigation, they don't announce that either woman was sexually assaulted because they're going to try and rule out anybody coming in with a false confession. Um, with how violent these killings were and with it seeming like the attacker is escalating, I believe Polly was assaulted. I believe it happened either, like in Mary's case, how she was assaulted during um, the attack. I think that Mary and Jimmy would have been killed had that car not driven down the road. I think that the assault on Polly occurred and then Polly was executed and then staged. These are just my theories. I don't know. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, three days after the murder, so now it's March 27th, police are going to interview roughly 50 to 60 witnesses from a local bar that was located near the crime scene. Now, one of those theories um, on why they wanted to talk to the people that were at this bar is that maybe Richard and Polly had stopped at this bar before traveling to the lover's lane and while they were there they angered somebody or they got into a fight with somebody or something along those lines however they were unable to confirm by anyone in the bar that Richard and Polly were even there on the evening of March 23rd to the early morning hours of March 24th so this theory was kind of just thrown out because they interviewed all these people and they were like, we don't remember seeing this couple. So it was unconfirmed. Now, three days later, on March 30th, a $500 reward would was offered. And in today's market, that award or reward, excuse me, equates to $7,610.18. And this is going to be for any information that would bring the police to an arrest. Unfortunately, this reward for information is not going to go over as planned. Instead of receiving like credible information, the police are going to receive over 100 false leads. And early into the investigation, the police are going to arrest three individuals who they believed were like top suspects. They believed that 
one of these guys was going to be good for it. Now, upon further investigation, two of the three suspects are going to be cleared because they um, had a valid reason for why their clothing was bloody. And yes, these three suspects were arrested simply because they had bloody clothing. Now, I don't know what these valid reasons were, but I'm going to venture to say that maybe it was animal blood, they're hunters or they're butchers or something. But for some reason, there's a valid reason why they have blood in their clothes and they're released. Now, the third suspect is actually going to be held in Vernon, Texas, while police look into this person a little bit further. This, this suspect, though, is going to eventually be cleared of any involvement in the crimes. Now, the third attack is going to occur four weeks later on April 13th, 1946. Betty Jo Booker played the saxophone for a group called the Rhythm Airs, and they were playing a gig that evening, With and Betty had plans to see Paul Martin after the show. The show ended around 1, and Betty was released from the group around 1.30. Paul picked, picked her up in his 1946 Ford Club Coupe, and he had plans to drop her off later at a sleepover. But before heading to that sleepover, the pair will pull over to a lover's lane to spend some alone time together. But, unfortunately, what happened next is anything but romantic. Five hours later, after the pair left the VFW, Mr. and Miss Weaver, along with their young son, would happen upon Paul on the side of the North Park Road, lifeless and having been shot multiple times. And on the other side of the road, the family would find blood smeared all over the road, and they knew immediately that there was another victim. However, Betty Jo was nowhere to be found. The Weavers notified the police, and again, Sheriff Presley and Chief Jack Runyles were the first on the scene. Police pieced together that Paul was with Betty Jo the night before, but they still could not find her. And at this time, police were not sure if Betty Jo was alive or if she was dead. They immediately began searching the area and looking for any signs of Betty Jo. It would, however, take another five hours before Betty Jo was found. At 11.30 a.m., nearly two miles away from where Paul's body was found, police would find Betty Jo lying on her back behind a tree, having been shot multiple times. And like the other victims, Betty Jo's body seemed staged. Her hands were placed inside of her coat pocket. And at this point, police knew they had a serial killer on their hands. But in 1946, that term didn't exist. That term wouldn't be a thing until 20 year, 28 years later, excuse me, in 1974, when the term serial killer was coined. Police knew at this point, though, they're looking for a serial offender, a repeat offender, a multiple murderer. I don't know what they called it back then. And they, at this point, are now convinced that the previous two attacks were also connected to this one. Unlike Richard and Polly's murder, a forensic examination is going to be performed on Paul and Betty Jo. And the results of their forensic examination showed 
Paul was shot four times with one of the bullets exiting through his nose. Another bullet entered his back and traveled through his ribs and went through the left side of his body. This suggested that Paul was running away from his attacker. Was Paul told to run like Mary was? Or did Paul see the opportunity to run? We don't know. The third bullet, though, was lodged in his right hand, suggesting that he may have put his hand out to protect himself. And the final bullet had exited through Paul's neck. Now, Betty Jo's examination showed that she was only shot twice, one to her chest and the other one close range to her face. And like Mary and presumably Polly, Betty Jo was also sexually assaulted. Examination of the bullets also showed that Richard and Polly, like Paul and Betty Jo, were shot with a 32 Colt pistol. Now, something different in this case that um, is different from the other two is that Paul's car wasn't found near the couple. Paul was actually found a mile and a half away from his car, and Betty Jo was found another two miles away. Now, police also struggled to identify in this situation who was shot first and what exactly happened that night slash early morning. Like I mentioned earlier, Betty Jo had played the saxophone in a band and had a gig that night at the local VFW. Now, police discovered that her saxophone was missing and they initially believed that maybe this was a robbery gone wrong. And while Sheriff Presley handled the murder investigations, the Texas City Police Chief Jack Runnels, Runnel, Runnels, I'm sorry, handled the missing saxophone case. I think it's Runnels. Now, a week later, on April 25th, a man in Corpus Christi, Texas, is going to try and sell a saxophone at a music store. And during this interaction, the employee is going to note that he seemed nervous, he's kind of jittery, and just acting a little strange. So he's going to tell his manager about this interaction. And the manager's going to come out and confront the guy about the saxophone. And this makes the guy run away. Now, sometime between April 25th and April 27th, the man who was at the music store trying to sell the saxophone is going to go and purchase a 45 revolver from a local pawn shop. And on the 27th, he's going to be arrested and police are going to search his room and they're going to find the revolver and a bag of bloody clothes, but they were unable to locate the saxophone that he was trying to pawn off. Now, the bloody clothes, he said, came from a bar fight that he was in and he ended up being held for several days and he was questioned numerous times over those several days, but ultimately the police ruled him out that he wasn't their guy. How they came to that conclusion eludes me. I don't know. I wasn't able to find that information. Six months later, on October 24th, 1946, Betty Jo's missing saxophone is actually going to be located. And it's located a short distance from where her body was found. Now, this means one of two things, in my opinion. The first one is that when they were searching the area and looking for evidence they did not do a thorough job and missed her saxophone being there completely which means that they didn't travel far enough away from the body to look for further evidence or the killer returned to the area and dumped the saxophone there 
Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find any information on the condition of the saxophone. So I can't say, oh, for sure, the saxophone was out there for those six months, exposed to the elements, had rust on it, had damage, things like that. So either either of these two options could have occurred um, because we just don't know how long that saxophone was out there for. The final attack is going to occur on May 3rd, 1946. And it was a Friday night, and it started off like every other Friday night for Virgil and Katie Starks. Now, Virgil and Katie are going to be the only married couple that are going to be targeted in these attacks. And they're going to be the only couple who was not targeted in a car. Now, Virgil was a farmer, and he often worked late into the evening, and this night was no different. Virgil arrived home around 9 p.m., and he turned on his radio to listen to his favorite radio show, and he sat down in his favorite chair in the sitting room of their home. And after greeting Virgil, Katie had decided to retire to the bedroom where she had changed from her daily clothes to her night clothes, and she lay down in bed. Now, while lying down, she heard some commotion, which she initially believed was coming from the backyard. So Katie hollered up and asked Virgil if he could potentially turn the radio down a bit so she could see or so she could hear um, better um, and get like a better listen in on what the noise was. So Virgil obliged. He got up from his chair, but something is going to stop him right in his tracks. A minute is going to go by, probably not a minute, more like a few seconds is going to go by and Katie is going to rise from the bed and she's going to poke her head out and again ask Virgil if he could turn the radio down. But she heard later what she described as glass breaking at this time and she's going to rush out of the bedroom to the sitting room where she's going to see Virgil standing up just before dropping back down into his armchair. So Katie noticed Virgil, um, Virgil's face was covered in blood and soon realized that he had been shot. At this point though, it's unclear to Katie just how many times he was shot. And unbeknownst to Katie, the shooter was standing just outside her home, waiting and watching. Now Katie is gonna rush to Virgil's side and she's going to be hit with the crushing realization that her husband, her childhood sweetheart, was dead. Katie is then going to run over to the phone to try to call the police. And she's going to pull the wall crank on the phone two times before the killer is going to shoot her. Katie is going to be hit from behind by the first bullet. It's going to enter through her right cheek and exit from behind her left ear. And the second bullet is going to hit her just below her lip. It's going to break her jaw and shatter several of her teeth. Now, this bullet is actually going to lodge under her tongue. And somehow, Katie is still alive at this point. She's been shot in the face essentially two times and is still alive. She's crippled by fear. And what I can only describe as un imaginable pain like I, I can't even begin to fathom the pain 
the pain and the fear that this woman was going through at this point. Somehow Katie is is going to crawl back to her bedroom and she's going to think about what her next move is. This woman is going to shot in the face two times, crawl back to her bedroom and be like, okay, what is my game plan? The game plan that she comes up with involves her going back out to the living room where she had just been shot. Now she's going to retrieve the pistol that Virgil and she kept out there. She's blinded by blood that is just pouring out of her face at this point. And she is struggling to find her way through the home. And she's going to quickly realize that the killer is now in the back of the house. And he is trying to claw his way into the house through a window. And Katie is going to decide in that split second that escaping out the front door is her only hope. She's barefoot. She's soaked in blood terrified shot in the face blinded by the blood and fear and just grief at this point and she's gonna run out her front door she's gonna run across the street to her brother-in-law's house she's gonna bang on the door she's gonna come to the realization he's not home but his neighbor av pratter was now she bangs on pratter's door she gets his attention and pratter is gonna grab his rifle that he keeps in the house and he's going to fire a warning shot into the air. This warning shot is going to alert fellow neighbors to the situation at hand. One of the neighbors that answered the distress call is Elmer Taylor. I just kind of want to pause here and be and just talk about how now if we heard our neighbor shoot a rifle into the air, there's no way we're coming out there to see what's going on. We're we're probably calling 911. Back then, Elmer, dude, was like, something's going on. Like, what is it? So he comes out. He's responding to the distress call. Pratter's going to inform Elmer he needs to go get his car because the Starks have been shot and Virgil is dead. And Katie is barely clinging on at this point. So Taylor, um, Elmer Taylor brings his car around. Now, Pratter, his wife, and their baby... Are going to transport, sorry, my dog is a hot mess. Um, they're going to transport Katie and Taylor, who at this point has not left her side, to the hospital. And en route, somehow, Katie is remaining conscious. And in her confused state, she's going to pull out one of her broken teeth. And I'm, I'm sorry, this just, I can't, like, I can't imagine. Like, I'm not laughing at the situation. Like, I'm just... This woman is a badass, okay? Like, she pulls out a gold tooth, hands it to Elmer Taylor, almost as a way of saying, like, hey, thanks for the ride. Like, what a badass thing to do. Like, seriously. So, they get Katie to the hospital. She's lost a lot of blood. The doctors are like, I don't know how this woman is not in shock. I don't know how she's not dead. Like, she's been shot in the face. Somehow, though, she's she's alive. She's going to be okay. She has to undergo surgery to fix the damage to her face, but she's going to live. Now, the police are going to arrive at the Stark's home, of, and they're going to find what is can only be described as a horrifying scene. And... One thing that um, 
sticks out to police is that it felt very eerily similar to the attacks that were haunting Texarkana. The other difference, this attack took place on the Arkansas side of town. So Texarkana spans the state of Texas and the state of Arkansas. I've been in Texarkana, you drive through, it is like a little corner where the town literally sits in both sides of the state. It's it's pretty neat. So the Starks lived in Texarkana, Arkansas, which is where the Texarkana, Texas, Arkansas border comes from. So at this point, they don't realize that there have been other attacks until um, Captain Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers gets involved. And so he's working. Uh, Captain Gonzalez is actually going to work with um, the Arkansas State Police and Sheriff Davis from Miller County, which is in Arkansas. And some of the initial investigators on scene at the Stark residence are going to describe it as having a river of blood in their home. And even Captain Gonzalez has said, it is beyond me how she did not bleed to death. Like, that's how much blood was in this home. Like, that is why I had to just, I, she is a badass. Like, Mary is a badass. Jimmy is a badass. Like, this dude who did these attacks, not a badass. He's a scummy human trash person. And I hope that if he is dead, he stubs his toe and brings, breaks his pinky toe every single day, all day, for the rest of eternity. And I digress. Moving on. Sheriff Davis from Miller County is going to arrive on the scene. He is from Arkansas. He's going to block off Highway 67. Now, he's going to hope that by blocking off Highway 67, they're going to catch this dude. Or they're going to catch any suspicious individuals who are trying to flee the area. Twelve individuals are going to be brought in for questioning. Nine of them are going to be let go. And then three are going to be kept for a more in-depth line of questioning. However, all twelve of those people who were brought in are going to eventually be cleared. And they're all going to be let go. Now, during the investigation at the Starks' home... Police only found two bullet holes in the window. We know that Virgil was shot four times and Katie was shot two times. So that's a, that's a total of six bullets, but only two bullet holes. Now, this, this made investigators think, like, okay, what kind of weapon was used if a total of six bullets hit the Starks, but there's only two holes? Eventually, police are going to come to the conclusion that the killer must have used like an automatic rifle, and they believe that it was this type of rifle because it would allow the shooter to fire multiple rounds through the same hole without needing to stop and then re-aim, which is how he was able to shoot the um, first hole in the window and shot and kill Virgil. So that created the first hole. He then sat back and waited for Katie to come into the crosshairs of his rifle before firing and creating that second hole. So he's going to create that second hole with the first shot and then he's going to shoot her again, which is probably why it hit her in the face 
relatively in the same area in the cheek and in the in the jaw so police are then going to bring in bloodhounds and they're going to see if they're able to pick up the killer's trail and those bloodhounds did just that they picked it up they were able to pick up a trail from the starks home and they followed it all the way back to the highway that's highway 67 however the dogs are going to lose the trail once they get to the highway this is going to lead police to believe that the killer probably stashed a car somewhere along that highway and was able to get in before police were able to set up that blockade so what i'm thinking happened is this killer shot virgil shot katie watched as katie left the house or maybe not watched her but realized that she was gone and instead of sticking around to see if he could try and pick her off while she was running across the street he got out of dodge that's what i'm thinking happened so <clears throat> police would also find um tire tracks from what they believed was the killer's vehicle however those tire tracks are they weren't able to connect it to any particular vehicle now rumors are going to begin to circulate that Virgil was actually harassed in the days leading up to his death. But when police spoke with Katie, when she got out of surgery, was starting to recuperate, she dismissed those rumors and said that there had been nothing in the days prior that would have even remotely led to somebody wanting to kill her husband and to shoot her. She's like, absolutely not. That did not happen. Now, Sheriff W.E. Davis is going to tell the press during this investigation, quote, This killer is the luckiest person I have ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. This then leads the press to calling him the Phantom Killer. Now, on March 29th, 1946, the Texarkana Gazette is going to publish a story and in that story, it's going to feature the flashlight that was actually found in a bush underneath the window of the Starks' home. So, first attack on Mary and Jimmy, there was a flashlight. Don't know if the flashlight is the same, but the photo that was published in the Gazette is going to be the first ever color uh, colored photo and in that photo it is going to show how the flashlight was painted red on both ends which that particular style of flashlight was rare for the area at the time so police were then able to determine that there was a very limited amount of this style of flashlight that was sold in the Texarkana area and they hoped that by releasing this colored photo which was like revolutionary for 1946 that they would be able to gather some leads of who may have purchased the flashlight or if you were like oh that's my flashlight but i bar i let you know billy joe or bobby sue or somebody borrow it so like they were hoping that somebody somewhere would be able to be like oh that's my flashlight here you go you know or my neighbor has a flashlight like that. I went to borrow it and it's missing. But that didn't happen. Now, three weeks following the shooting of Virgil and Katie, 
the flashlet is then going to be sent to Washington, D.C. to the FBI crime lab where they're going to perform fingerprint testing on it, but those yielded no results. Now, following Virgil's, Virgil's murder, excuse me, the Texas Rangers and the Arkansas State Police are going to get additional resources to help in their pursuit with the killer. Now, Austin, Texas is going to send two-way radios and a mobile radio station that is going to allow officers to talk with each other in different locations. And at this time in 1946, that was state-of-the-art. And they're also going to um, send up a teletype machine, and that's going to be installed in the police departments, and it's going to allow for um, interdepartmental um conversation and it's going to allow the departments to communicate with the texas rangers and the arkansas state police now rumors would plague this investigation from the start and one of those rumors was that a former german pow that had red hair and wore a gi jacket was the one who was responsible for the attacks on the starks now, this POW allegedly had a weapon in his possession and was threatening residents in the area while hitchhiking. However, nothing came of these rumors, but the teletype machine and the two-way radios that I mentioned earlier allowed for the departments to pass along this information rather quickly. And then another rumor um, was that each victim encountered their attacker before the attacks. So... Before they were attacked, they encountered this attacker, like, in a, um, in a diner or in a grocery store, something along those lines. But the police quickly shut this rumor down because they were unable to find anything that linked any of the victims together besides the fact that they were murdered. Prior to these murders occurring, residents of the sleepy Texarkana town didn't lock their doors, but that quickly began to change and they started to buy locks for their doors and their windows and they bought out firearms and ammunition and anything that could be used as their version of a security system began to sell out. This town went from one where they would leave their doors open and unlocked and their windows open to now propping chairs and other things against the doors and windows to alert them of anything that goes bump in the night. Through the course of this investigation, nearly 400 people were arrested and questioned regarding the murders and attacks. Another prominent suspect that a lot of theories kind of circle around was a University of Arkansas freshman who committed suicide two years after the murders ended. And in his suicide note, he actually confesses to the murders, but his confession was eventually discredited and believed to be false. And I, my heart aches for his family and I am so sorry. Um, and another suspect that police um, kind of thought maybe that he was good for it was a man from Los Angeles who committed um, the crimes while he was in a coma. So, so, so police thought that this guy who was from LA committed these crimes while he was in a coma. Um, 
yeah, I don't really know. Um, I couldn't find much other than that little little blurb. Um, it doesn't make sense because the man was in a coma. So, I don't know. However, the final person that I want to talk about in it seems like the overwhelming majority consensus seems to think that this guy is good for the crimes. Uh, even his wife believes he's responsible for the murders. Now, his name was Yoel Swinney, and he was a local resident of Texarkana. And he was actually arrested in 1947 for Grand Theft Auto. And Swinney would, um, he popped onto police radar after Arkansas State Troopers had put together that a car was stolen on the night of each attack. So when the first attack occurred, a car was stolen. That car um, was then abandoned. So every time a car would be stolen, attack would occur, and then it would be abandoned, and then another attack would occur with another car being stolen. Now, <clears throat> Swinney was also driving one of the cars that had been stolen the weekend that Richard and Polly were murdered. And Swinney's wife, Peggy, is the one who actually implicated her husband in the murders. So she goes into great detail describing the murders of Betty Jo and Paul. Um, so... She went to police and said that her husband was good for it. He did it. Here's how I know. She's eventually then going to kind of recant in the sense of she doesn't fully recant her confession on, or not really confession, but she doesn't recant her statement, but she does start to tell conflicting statements to the police. And then she changes her story completely um, and altogether. Now, police have no physical evidence to tie Swinney to the murders, and Peggy is then going to invoke her right to not testify against her husband. So, Swinney is never going to be charged with the murders. I think Swinney is probably good for it, and Peggy is terrified of him. I think that's my, that's my thoughts. I don't know. Now, Swinney is actually going to be sentenced to life in prison for repeatedly stealing cars. But he's going to be released in 1973, and he's eventually going to pass away in 1994 without ever admitting to committing the murders. And in 2014, James Presley wrote the book, The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town in Terror. And in that book, Presley lays out what he says is enough evidence to prove that Swinney was responsible for the attacks and the killings. However, others that lived in Texarkana during the time or live there now and even investigators remained unconvinced that Swinney is responsible for the killings. And they think this, like they don't think Swinney is good for it because in 1948, Virginia Carpenter would go missing and many believe that her disappearance was the work of the phantom killer, but Swinney was already in prison, so it couldn't have been him. However, I don't think Virginia Carpenter is tied to the phantom killings because one, she's solo and two, she was never found. From my research, it doesn't look like she was ever 
found. And from everything that I've read, it doesn't seem like she was with a, a gentleman at the time of her disappearance. So I, I don't think her disappearance and probable murder is the phantom killer, but it could be a copycat or something along the lines. Now, in 1999 and in, and in 2000, an anonymous woman, woman excuse me, is going to contact family members of the victim. So uh, like Betty Jo, Paul, Jimmy, Mary, Virgil, Katie, um, and Polly and Richard's family. And they're going to apologize for what their father has done. Now, Swinney doesn't have a daughter. So many don't think because of this apology that he is responsible. But that doesn't mean that the person, that this woman who called in 99 and in 2000 was legitimate. She, we don't know. We don't know um, if this person was malicious in their attempt, in their calls and they were just trying to cause more heartache, reopen old wounds. We don't really know. From everything that I've read, nobody has figured out who this phone call um, was, like who it came from or when it occurred or excuse me, not when, but where it occurred, like regional wise. Like, did it come from Texarkana? Did it come from somewhere else? Um, things like that. Now, regardless of what any of us believe at the end of this episode or what police believe, there is one thing we know for sure. It has been 77 years since these murders were convicted or committed, excuse me. And the chances of us ever finding out who committed the crime are slim. Like being able to find this person and convict this person are slim. It's 77 years later. But familial DNA could potentially link a family member of the killer to these crimes and you know those family members could say okay we it's not closure because your family member has been murdered there there's no closure to that there is no justice to that um but having that answer of who who did it could potentially help those family members but i don't know i I, I don't have a loved one who was ever murdered and I may be speaking completely out of turn. I just hope, I just hope that one day those families get those answers. <clears throat> and that is the story of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. I hope to catch you back here next week. I hope you keep listening and I hope you stay spooky and be a good human. Bye, guys.